SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yira Damarang, hello, I'm Luana Grant and welcome to NITV Radio. In the program today, we hear from Prof- Professor Chris Wilson, Aboriginal Heritage Research Fellow at the University of Tasmania, the first Indigenous Australian PhD graduate in archaeology and co-presenter on the four-part documentary series The First Inventors, celebrating and exploring the world's longest surviving culture, that of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We will also be hearing from Professor Kylie Cripps, the Director of Monash Centre for Indigenous Studies, who has led a study revealing that systematic racism within Australia's justice system is connected to the deaths of 151 Indigenous women. Also coming up on today's program, Australia will hold a referendum on an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament in the next six months after the legislation enabling it passed in the Federal, in the federal Parliament earlier this week. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The latest title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, a leading advocate for the Indigenous voice says it is time for politicians to step back and let the Australian public take control of the conversation. The Australian Human Rights Commission finds serious human rights concerns in the use of hotels by Australia's immigration detention system. And in sport, Football New Zealand to contact FIFA over its walk-off in the Qatar friendly. A leading advocate for the Indigenous voice says it is time for politicians to step back and let the Australian public take control of the conversation. Uluru Dialogue co-chair Pat Anderson says now the legislation enabling the referendum has passed, the focus needs to shift away from politicians towards the people who will be voting in the referendum. Ms Anderson says it is the Australian public who now have the authority to decide the outcome of the vote. She says campaigners in favour of the Indigenous voice will now be talking with Australians about the practical benefits it would bring for Indigenous people. 85 judges from all over Australia have stepped out of their comfort zone, bringing their annual conference to small communities in Central Australia. The judges all from the Federal Circuit Court and Family Court of Australia. Their annual conference is usually held in a large city, but this year they've brought it to Alice Springs. Chief Justice of the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia, William Alstergreen, says holding the conference in a small community was an eye-opener. It's such a great eye-opener for them. A lot of them are people from the eastern states 
who may have never been to a community before or certainly never been to the Territory before, to have the opportunity of actually hearing from people what they're facing and what they're doing and again, having the opportunity of listening and learning is so incredibly important and they really, really appreciate it. It's just been fantastic. The learning sessions for the judges include a visit to the communities of Santa Teresa and Hermansburg. Nora, a Santa Teresa community member, hailed the visit as a great opportunity for mutual understanding. Normally, the, just people saying judges would scare people, so, <laughs> but it's a good uh, sort of uh, interaction and, uh, and it's, we're grateful for understanding all of us understanding each other. A special court to hear cases involving Aboriginal children is one of a suite of new measures which will be introduced in South Australia to reduce the level of Indigenous incarceration. The state government will establish an Aboriginal justice agreement to develop a collaborative approach to improve justice outcomes. It also builds a new community correction centre at Port Augusta with culturally appropriate rehabilitation and reintegration spaces, develop a program to support Indigenous offenders to return to the workforce upon release and establish a drug and alcohol treatment facility. In a two-year trial, a youth Aboriginal community court in Adelaide will aim to address escalation points in the offending of young people and implement protective strategies to divert them away from a life of crime. A report from the Australian Human Rights Commission finds serious human rights concerns persist in the use of hotels as alternative places of detention within Australia's immigration detention system. The report found detention in hotels had severe negative impacts on people's physical and mental health, which became progressively worse the longer a person was detained. Australian Human Rights Commissioner Lorraine Finlay says the use of hotels has become too regularised and should only ever be used in exceptional circumstances and for the shortest time possible. In the official response, the the Department of Home Affairs agrees with two of 24 recommendations from the Commission, as well as disagreeing with a further five and noting the remaining 17. The federal government says it takes allegations of war crimes against the Australian Defence Forces very seriously. This comes as Senator Jackie Lambie referred allegations to the International Criminal Court. In 2020, the Brereton Report found evidence of what they claimed were 39 murders committed by Australian SAS soldiers in Afghanistan, resulting in one former soldier being charged. Senator Lambie, herself a defence veteran, says she, made the, says she made the referral because the senior leaders in the ADF had not been held accountable for what had allegedly happened in Afghanistan. Defence Minister Richard Miles offered to meet with the Senator to address her concerns about the way war crime investigations have been conducted, but he says the government is confident that they have been doing the right thing. Ultimately, that's a matter for the ICC. Um, what I can tell you is what the Australian government is doing. Um, we regard this very seriously. We will seek to implement the recommendations of the Brereton Report to the fullest possible extent. And under this government, Australia is holding itself to account. Taxpayers will invest $500 million in critical mineral projects in northern Australia under a long-awaited federal strategy. Strategically important projects will be de-risked with government support to attract private finance and ensure domestic processing and manufacturing projects can access Australian minerals. Research Minister Madeline King says the strategy will 
will position Australia to play a leading role in the supply chain for electric cars and renewable energy. This country was built on the resources industry, first gold, then coal, iron ore and then gas. And the resources industry continues to be the backbone of the economy of this nation. I have consistently said that the road to net zero runs through Australia's resources sector. Time is running out as the search for a submarine that went missing in the remote northern Atlantic continues. The submarine disappeared on Sunday while carrying a pilot and four passengers on an exploration of the Titanic wreckage. With all communications lost, rescuers do not know whether the submersible is floating just, be- just below the water's surface or submerged at the bottom of the ocean. Experts estimate that the submersible, if it remains intact, has just over 30 hours of remaining oxygen for the crew. The vice chair of a Pakistani conglomerate, the the Engro Corporation, and his sons are on the submarine, as well as British billionaire Hamish Harding. Mr Harding's friend and a fellow explorer, Yankee Mickelson, says she's anxiously awaiting good news. Well, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm sick to my stomach with nerves. I'm terrified. I'm anxious. I'm just hoping for good news. Every single second, every single minute feels like hours. And we're losing time and we're losing opportunity to find them alive. If they manage to self-ascend, they should have managed to have done it by yesterday. That proves that either the crew is not alive or B, the crew is alive, but they may be stuck somewhere. Former AFL star Michael Long is to recreate his historic 2000 and walk to Canberra in the lead-up to the voice referendum as a show of support for the yes vote. Mr Long's walk is to begin in August or September. The former Essendon champion says he plans to stop in a number of regional communities to discuss the referendum, which he has described as Australia's ch- chance to take a big unifying step forward. To sport now... Football New Zealand says it will contact FIFA about the alleged racial abuse of Kiwi defender Michael Boxall, which promoted the team to walk off from its friendly with Qatar. Football New Zealand head Andrew Andrew Pragnall says in addition to taking their complaint to the world governing body, he also wants to talk to Australian Tim Cahill, who has worked as an assistant coach, Qatar coach, sorry, I'll start that again, uh, Tim Cahill, who has who was worked as an assistant Qatar coach with Carlos Queiroz at the time the abuse has occurred. Yeah, don't have any details in terms of him, but I obviously know him and uh, no doubt we'll be in touch. In terms of what's next, um, certainly we want, we want to re- re- reach out to FIFA on this. Uh, you know, they've recently re-established a task force around racism. Um, more needs to be done to protect players from racial attacks on the field. And now I look at today's weather. Broome, cloudy 25. Perth, showers easing 16. Adelaide, showers 15. Melbourne, partly cloudy 12. Hobart, also partly cloudy 12. Aubrey-Wodonga, partly cloudy 10. Canberra, morning frost and mostly sunny 12. Wollongong, sunny 16. Sydney, also sunny and 16. Newcastle, sunny 18. Brisbane, sunny 21. Townsville, partly cloudy, 26. Cairns, partly cloudy, 28. Alice Springs, showers, 19. Darwin, mostly sunny, 31. And the Torres Strait Islands, partly cloudy, 28. And that is NITV Radio News.
Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Coming up next, a conversation with Professor Chris Wilson, the first Indigenous Australian PhD graduate in archaeology and co-presenter of the four-part documentary series The First Inventors. Earlier this week, the legislation enabling that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament pass in the Federal Parliament was an abs- with an absolute majority, and those who opposed it made their voice heard. But first, Professor Kylie Cripps, the Director of Monash Centre for Indigenous Studies, in conversation with NITV Radio's Sierra Schrader. Together they explore a study revealing systematic racism within Australia's justice system and devastating consequences for First Nations women. A study conducted by Monash University has revealed that systematic racism within Australia's justice system is connected to the deaths of 151 Indigenous women. The study led by Professor Kylie Cripps highlights the vulnerability of Indigenous women to intimate partner homicides, with most of the 151 deaths over a 20-year period being entirely preventable. I'm joined by Professor Kylie Cripps, the Director of Monash Centre for Indigenous Studies, to speak further on her findings. First of all, thank you for joining us today on NITV Radio, Kylie. Thank you. Um, Can you tell me what motivated you to conduct this study on Indigenous women and domestic violence, uh, particularly intimate partner homicides? Uh, So I was motivated to do this study because, you know, a couple of reasons. One was that we often uh, hear about the high incidence of domestic and family violence in our communities. Uh, we we don't um, necessarily hear about uh, what happens to our, our Indigenous women that have died as a result of domestic and family violence, and and that's important in the context that our nation stops for other domestic and family violence victims. For our Indigenous victims, the nation hasn't stopped. The Parliament doesn't stop, and in many respects, there's a silence around the deaths of our Indigenous women. And so, I'm I was very interested in understanding and exploring the circumstances around our women's deaths and also looking at ways in which we might have prevented these deaths earlier. So that's what I was motivated by. I mean, when you look at at the stories that that we reviewed, it is very much around honouring these women too, you know, in, in in the fact that there has been such a silence. It's looking at these deaths and remembering that these are women that were loved and respected and valued by their families and their communities and they deserve the opportunity to, to be honoured and respected um, in the public domain and to be spoken with such respect. Uh, and that in being able to res- uh, to engage with their stories uh, as I do in, in this paper, it is also to produce accountability, accountability to systems and services that have failed them in, in circumstances that arguably um, could have prevented their deaths in the first place. Well, in your opinion, why do Indigenous women experience higher rates of violence compared to other Australians? Um, so the reasons that, that we experience high rates is complex. Um, there are um, a number of significant issues um, that contribute to these high rates, and you know a lot of it has has to do with systemic issues around access to, to services. Um, it's uh, related to the social conditions um, in our environment. You know the high rates of, of unemployment, um, the lack of housing, and the social stresses that put that are put on our families. So it, it's being 
uh, honest and, and reflective of those conditions, but it's also reflecting on in those moments where our women experience violence. It's about how they're supported in those moments. When they call out for help, who's there to support them and what kind of assistance are they being offered? Is it, you know, I've written previously about how it's often our unsung heroes in our communities that, that are providing the assistance because that assistance uh, comes with unconditional love from aunties and uncles in our communities that open their doors and their hearts to, to support our women in their times of need. And, and their homes, right, to offer them beds when shelters are full um, and that women haven't been able to, to get safe places to stay in their time of need. So it, it is complex. There's, there's no easy uh, answer for, for causation. It, it's a whole host of complex issues that contribute to the experience of violence. But it, it is that, that point of, of thinking about who's there to support them in their time of need. Well, how do you define and understand systematic racism within the Australian justice system and how did it manifest in the cases you examined? Um, that's a very good question. I, what we did when we looked at those 151 cases was we particularly looked at, at in, in this first paper, at first responders, because in often in, in the um, circumstances of domestic and family violence, when people are in in trouble when things escalate to a point that's out of control, uh, they'll call triple zero. And so we started by looking at what were um, victims, uh, what did they receive in terms of a response when they dialed triple zero? From triple zero to, to looking at, um, well, what was the response of police when they turned up on scene? Uh, to what was the response when women asked for um domestic violence orders or for um, breaches to those domestic violence orders to, to be um, dealt with. So I'll just take a moment and, and, and speak to you about the triple zero calls. Now, there were numbers of occasions in, in this um, sample where women had called triple zero. Now, these were women that you could hear in the background um, on the calls. They were crying. They were moaning. Um, they, you could hear that they were in pain. They were... Uh, you know, you could hear the violence in the background. Um, these were what the coroners had noted um, in their case files. Now, the police didn't respond to those calls because in many respects, these were calls where nobody communicated anything on these triple zero calls. You know, in, in these calls, you would have, you know, two, three, four calls from the same residents over the course of a night and early morning. And the coroners were asking in these uh, coronial investigations of the police officers and triple zero callers, you know, if you went to the residents on the second call or the third call or the fourth call, would the, the, the lady concerned have survived? It's a very pertinent question because when we think about the reasons why women are unable to speak when they make those calls, I think that that talks to the very nature of domestic and family violence. Um, for example, it may be that it's unsafe for her to speak. She's dialing, um, hiding in a bedroom or in the bathroom. And if she speaks, then he knows that she's, she's calling for help and that's going to attract more violence. It may be that, that she's got um, a head injury or that she's got a broken jaw and that she physically can't speak. But these are not reasons for us not to send emergency services to that address. 
Yeah. Well, my next question was going to be, how can the justice system be held more accountable for addressing the specific needs and safety concerns for Aboriginal women? Um, I think what's significant in these case files is that, you know, these are the worst case examples um, of where police uh, had a responsibility uh, to respond to these women's calls for help. Um, And it is incumbent upon uh, these police systems to review these similar case files and uh, and do as the coroners have suggested, and that is to examine them and understand where the failings were and to change practices so that uh, these deaths don't occur in future for the same reasons. But more than that, you know, what was significant in the, these case files was that these police officers um, and emergency service uh, operators operated outside their, their operational guidelines. So this is, is a, a, a reinforcement, if you will, that you know, we have operational guidelines on domestic and family violence for a reason, and it is incumbent on professionals with uh, the responsibility to, to respond as, as first responders to, to these calls and for our women's calls for help that they do so in accordance with their guidelines, not operate uh, uh, with uh, their own discretion in in ways that um, compromise our women's lives. Well, are there any successful interventions or programs that have shown promise in addressing domestic abuse among Indigenous communities? Absolutely. There are uh, examples of uh, successful programs right across the country um, of Indigenous programs. And it, it is, you know, if you were to go to um, the most recent Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar's report of uh, the women's, um, we, now I'm going to not remember what the name of the um, report is, um, but if you go to her report, there are examples in her report uh, of the complexity of violence uh, and the social issues that are affecting our communities and what the community is doing to respond to those issues. So I urge people to to, uh, to engage with her report, but also to, to look at past Social Justice Commissioner's reports because they've also previously tabled examples across our country. Now, um, the Productivity Commission is also tabling examples of good practice. We um, have recently at Monash been successful in setting up a centre of excellence on the elimination of violence against women. So this is a research centre that's work will in the uh, over the next seven years will be the next seven years will be about including uh, evaluations of programs across the country and across the Pacific. So learning from our neighbours who are doing uh, good work in this space. Lastly, I was wondering what your hopes are for the future in terms of improved safety and support for Indigenous women facing these types of violence? Um, my hope for the future is that, that we learn from these women's deaths. You know, their lives mattered to all of us, but especially to their families. Um, we honour their memories by doing all we can to improve the systems, the institutional cultures and the societal attitudes that have failed to hear their cries for help. Um, And I think that that's what's most important. We've got to break the silence uh, around um, our women's stories and actually hear their stories, appreciate um, their experiences and be responsive um, moving forward to ensure that uh, we prevent deaths moving forward. 
Well, Kylie, thank you very much for taking your time to speak with us today on NITV Radio. Thank you. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. What our ancestors invented was a sophisticated and robust civilization. The groundbreaking new series. We're rewriting the history of Australia. The First Inventors starts 8.40 Thursday on 10 and NITV. Now coming up next, The First Inventors is a co-commission between NITV and Network 10, hosted and narrated by proud Tiwi Islander man Rob Collins, who leads a team of First Nations investigators uncovering more than 65,000 years of invention and innovation. Professor Chris Wilson is one of the co-presenters on the four-part documentary series celebrating and exploring the world's longest surviving culture, that of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Bertrand Tungendami spoke to Professor Wilson about his involvement in the series. Professor Christopher Wilson, Aboriginal Heritage Research Fellow at the University of Tasmania, is joining us to explore the first inventors a new documentary series that aims to rewrite Australian history. Professor Wilson, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. The series, The First Inventors, um, explores how First Nations people built an extraordinary connected society on uh, the enormous and often inhospitable continent. And the series is actually a work of archaeology. This is your specialty. Mm. Yes, that's right. It's um, it's quite an exciting discipline, archaeology. Um, it's, it's one that hasn't been around um, for too long. It's been around since the 60s, but um, it encompasses a range of different fields like science and humanities and, um, and, and, other, and other areas as well. So I'm trying to get more younger people and just more generally people involved in, in, in the field of archaeology and heritage. From this series, what can we learn about the extraordinary science and inventions behind the world's oldest living culture? Yeah, well, look, well, I think one of the fascinating things about this series um, is it's starting to, um, you know, I guess broaden out to the rest of the Australian community around um, what Indigenous science is or um, what Indigenous knowledges are um, and also Indigenous archaeology. So we can learn a lot from not just experts or academics but also you know traditional owners and elders who you know lived on country um, and grown up on country so it's bringing together a range of different people and, and and fields of knowledge and i think that's one of the exciting things about this series um yeah we, we can learn a lot from not just academics but also from from elders as well and i think that's the special thing about um, what we're going to see it dispels a lot of myths, and each episode actually answers a question or two. The first one is, uh, how could you could you survive in Australia 65,000 years ago? How did people survive then? That question about survival is one of the questions in which you know we focus on in archaeology. Um, it's one in which we focus on you know around human evolution and just you know um, humanity in general. So it's, it's one of the key points that the um, the series is going to be exploring. Um, so you have to, to tune in to, to watch um, all the episodes. But I think some of the key things, just to give give one example, um, you know, is, is fire, for example. I mean, that's been such an important thing for um, the development of, of, of human beings um, you know, into to modern humans as we have today. So what the series will do is, is to help educate community around 
you know, I guess human evolution and, and that kind of science angle, um, but also give other perspectives, you know, around um, knowledge and um, and how people have survived on this continent. Most of uh, the prehistorical knowledge that we know about this uh, country is to- told through a Western-centric lens, and yet oral traditions have been around for generations and this is how First Nations people transmitted their knowledge from one generation to another. Can uh, oral stories accurately st- store vital knowledge? Certainly, I think to answer the question in the short answer, definitely. Um, you know, there's uh, the way in which we have captured this in the past, um, you know, hasn't been done so well in terms of we as in, you know, coming from the that kind of academic field. So I think one of the things that the series is trying to do is just show how there are different lines of evidence, um, you know, that we can use to then help build that picture and that story um, to be a more um, holistic story um, about the past. Because I mean, it's such a rich culture here, and you know, there are um, you know younger generations who you know want to know more about their culture. Um, Australians who, who who would like to engage more in, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, and I think this is one of the exciting things. We're at a really good point, I mean, an exciting time um, in Australia's history, you know, around truth telling, where we can um, you know, start to get some of this these messages and this knowledge out there. Yeah, and again, I was talking about the uh, European-centric uh, vision of uh, culture and history of uh, this country where there are myths that uh, First Nations people didn't really do a lot of transformation on the land yet. There were mm. extraordinary scientific developments back 65,000 years ago and industrial activity actually back then. Mm. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that archaeology has been able to do. Um, you know, colleagues in um, you know, in the field who, who pioneered that work, um, you know, who've been able to provide us with, you know, strong evidence around, you know, occupation and human occupation here. And, you know, that's that's where, you know, we've got quite a, a long way to go in terms of learning more about the past and then how people transmitted that knowledge and how people survived. And, um, you know, that, that'll be, you know, developing new techniques, working with traditional owners and, and elders and, um, you know, people who've, you know, lived on country and have that knowledge um, and who are willing to share that as well. So, you know, yeah, quite an exciting time. And, um, yeah, there's quite a lot of lot of years, as you said, you know, 65,000 years is, is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And what was your experience uh, filming the program? Yeah, so I've kind of been involved from when it was first pitched, um, you know, the, the concept when it was pitched and... Um, straight away, um, you know, when I saw Rob Collins involved and, um, I, you know, I, I saw that kind of, um, you know, saw some of that, those episodes developed, I thought, yeah, this is a really interesting concept and a, and a good time to actually, um, you know, start to talk about Indigenous science because we've, you know, we've had the first Australians and the first footprints, which have been really great resources that, you know, I've used in teaching as well. Um, so I think this one here, you know, is, is looking at the way in which Indigenous peoples have have um, contributed to to global science, and um, I think that's why it's called the the first inventors. And, and maybe some of the other the director and um, producers might be able to talk more about you know the um, the title. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of kind of my my take on it. I've, I've, as an archaeologist, I was the first Indigenous person to complete a PhD in archaeology. I probably think that's why um, you know I was first asked to to be involved and. 
um, I guess that's given me an opportunity to, you know, to work with the director and the company and the networks as well around um, you know, being able to contribute what I've learned as well and, and give back to community and work with community. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, there's a few stories in which I was involved in. Um, I think I think one of those is a, a confidential story, um, uh, but the the yeah, a couple of the other stories, you know, have been really exciting ones, you know, around, you know, the way in which, um, in, you know, mob have, um, you know, utilised the landscape um, and, you know, to um, to live and to survive and, um, you know, and just, not just to live and survive, but also, you know, in, inventing incredible, um, you know, tools um, and, and using the landscape in a, you know, in ways in which are quite fascinating. Um, so... Yeah, I think tune in and um, yeah, be be a great series. Yeah, and you also published a paper. I saw that one online uh, on uh, the Bond, which was a tool used uh, many thousands of years ago in Garinjeri country. Yeah, so I'm Garinjeri in, in Ghana. So I grew up in Adelaide, and um, you know that's where my mob's from. So a lot of my work, you know, I feel around working with uh, my own community. Um, so that's you know being along the Low Murray River. And looking at uh, the way in which people used um, river resources, and and some of that, um, you know, some of the dates, proto-carbon dates from there, have been dated, you know, back to seven or eight thousand years, um, which is important time in in kind of sea level rise and stabilisation, and um, it'll be one of the things in which we'll start to learn about in the series. So, um, in, in terms of sharing some of the other um, knowledge around archaeology and, and and kind of yeah, science more broadly. Yeah, no, I'll invite the listeners to tune in and uh, watch uh, these uh, series that's uh, really groundbreaking. Now, Professor Wilson, anything you'd like to add? No, I just hope you all enjoy it and um, thank you for having me on the show. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Australia will hold a referendum on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament in the next six months after the legislation enabling it passed the Federal Parliament. While it passed the Senate with an absolute majority, those who opposed it made their voice heard. Sophia Tariq reports. I declare that the Senate has passed the constitutional alteration Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice 2023 by an absolute majority. Senator Thorpe. The eyes 52 and the nose 19. The Parliament has passed the law needed to send the Australian public to the polls in the next six months to vote in a referendum for the first time in 24 years. Australians will be asked to vote to recognise Indigenous people in the Constitution and establish an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advisory body known as the Voice to Parliament. Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney. Our democracy and decision-making will be enhanced by the voice because listening to a range of opinions is essential for good policy. And let me be crystal clear. The voice will give independent advice to the parliament and the government It will be chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people based on the wishes of local local communities. It will be representative, community-led, accountable and transparent. 
Despite falling support for a yes vote in recent polls, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is still confident it will be successful. People in the business community have declared their support. Every major peak business organisation has declared support. The trade union movement have declared support. Every major sporting code has declared support. Every major faith group in Australia has declared their support. Civil organisations like ACOS and Salvation Army and others have declared their support. That support has been won by people who have examined it, who have looked at their own organisations and had their own processes. But now it's up to the Australian people. The bill passed with an absolute majority, as is required for a referendum, with only 19 senators voting no. The coalition says it will not support the voice, calling it divisive and risky. Opposition Attorney-General Michaelia Cash says the voice will open the government up to challenges in the High Court. It's risky, it's unknown, it's divisive, and on top of all of that, when you change our constitution, it is a permanent change. Enshrining the voice in the constitution does mean that it's open to legal challenge, and if it is open to legal challenge, it is open for interpretation by the High Court of Australia. The opposition spokesperson for Indigenous Australians, Jacinta Nampachimpa-Price, called the voice exploitative. The goodwill of many non-Indigenous Australians is being exploited by those who seek to profit in money, clout or power off the real problems being faced by marginalised Australians. This is a dangerous and costly proposal. It is legally risky and full of unknowns. It is exploitative. It is emotionally manipulative. Some Liberal backbenchers won't be supporting that position. Julian Lisa quit the Liberal Party frontbench so he could campaign for a yes vote. Well, what we're being asked to do in this referendum is vote yes to a new provision, a new set of provisions in the Constitution that basically gives the Parliament a mandate to create a body. Um, it gives us the constitutional recognition that the country's been talking about for decades. It gives the voice a permanent home in the Constitution and it allows Parliament the flexibility to make changes to what that looks like over time. That is the question before the Australian people. Do you want to vote yes or no to that? And I encourage Australians to vote yes. The Greens' Dorinda Cox says the voice will not impact the sovereignty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This change to the Constitution does not impact our sovereignty, my sovereignty. And I would not be standing up here in support of this bill if I had any doubt in my mind that it would. Greens have sought independent legal advice. We have had discussions with the referendum working group, the Attorney-General, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs who joined us here today, and many others. And I want to thank them for their respect of our concerns and for taking the time to hear us and address these concerns. But independent Senator Lydia Thorpe, who quit the Greens over its support for The Voice, voted no to the bill, saying it will cede sovereignty. She is calling for a treaty and the full implementation of all the recommendations of the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Senator Thorpe wore a shirt with the word gammon on it, which is Indigenous slang for fake. She says The Voice is only appeasing white guilt. You are crucifying us again giving us no power. If you were genuine, give us Senate seats in here, like they do in New Zealand. Have a treaty, like they do 
Why can't we do that? What are you scared of, Labor? Hawke got sidelined by his Conservatives at the time and told not to pursue treaty. You know that. Keating tried. He got shut down. And Albo's obviously got no guts. Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians, Malindry McCarthy, hopes the debate is respectful. But I am concerned a little bit when I hear about some of the commentary that goes on and I still urge all Australians to dig deep, to listen to the better side of yourself throughout this debate and to keep it at a level that is respectful. Sophia Tarek, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV what our ancestors invented was a sophisticated and robust civilization. The groundbreaking new series. We're rewriting the history of Australia. The First Inventors starts 8.40 Thursday on 10 and NITV. And that's all we have time for on today's program. You can listen back to the show or catch any of the stories on our website at sbs.com.au and also listen back on Spotify. I'm your host, Luana Grant. NITV Radio will be back on Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. with more stories from right across the country. Mandangor, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and we'll see you next time. People's movement. People's movement. People's movement.